Chapter Two, Part Two of *The Girl on the Boat* by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *Gallant Rescue* by Well-Dressed Young Man, Part Two. Three. In the brief interval of time which Marlowe had spent in the stateroom chatting with Eustace about the latter's bruised soul, some rather curious things had been happening above. Not extraordinary, perhaps, but curious. These must now be related. A story, if it is to grip the reader, should, I am aware, go always forward. It should march. It should leap from crag to crag, like the chamois of the Alps. If there is one thing I hate, it is a novel which gets you interested in the hero in chapter one, and then cuts back in chapter two to tell you all about his grandfather. Nevertheless, at this point, we must go back a space. We must return to the moment when, having deposited her Pekingese dog in her stateroom, the girl with the red hair came out again on deck. This happened just about the time when Eustace Hignett was beginning his narrative. The girl went to the rail and gazed earnestly at the shore. There was a rattle as the gangplank moved inboard and was deposited on the deck. The girl uttered a little cry of dismay. Then suddenly her face brightened, and she began to wave her arm to attract the attention of an elderly man with a red face, made redder by exertion, who had just forced his way to the edge of the dock and was peering up at the passenger-lined rail. The boat had now begun to move slowly out of its slip, backing into the river. It was now that the man on the dock sighted the girl. She gesticulated at him. He gesticulated at her. He produced a handkerchief, swiftly tied up a bundle of currency bills in it, backed to give himself room, and then, with all the strength of his arm, hurled the bills in the direction of the deck. The handkerchief, with its precious contents, shot in a graceful arc towards the deck, fell short by a good six feet, and dropped into the water, where it unfolded like a lily, sending twenty-dollar bills, ten-dollar bills, five-dollar bills, and an assortment of ones floating out over the wavelets. It was at this moment that Mr. Oscar Swenson, one of the thriftiest souls who ever came out of Sweden, perceived that the chance of a lifetime had arrived for adding substantially to his little savings. By profession he was one of those men who eke out a precarious livelihood by rowing dreamily about the waterfront in skiffs. He was doing so now, and, as he sat meditatively in his skiff, having done his best to give the liner a good send-off by paddling round her in circles, the pleading face of a twenty-dollar bill peered up at him. Mr. Swenson was not the man to resist the appeal. He uttered a sharp bark of ecstasy, pressed his bowler hat firmly upon his brow, and dived in. A moment later he had risen to the surface, and was gathering up money with both hands. He was still busy with this congenial task, when a tremendous splash at his side sent him under again, and, rising for a second time, he observed, with not a little chagrin, that he had been joined by a young man in a blue flannel suit, with an invisible stripe. "'Svensk!' exclaimed Mr. Swenson, or whatever it is that natives of Sweden exclaim in moments of justifiable annoyance." He resented the advent of this newcomer. He had been getting along fine, and had had the situation well in hand. To him Sam Marlowe represented competition, and Mr. Swenson desired no competitors in his treasure-seeking enterprise. "'He travels,' thought Mr. Swenson, 
the fastest who travels alone. Sam Marlowe had a touch of the philosopher in him. He had the ability to adapt himself to circumstances. It had been no part of his plans to come whizzing down off the rail into this singularly soup-like water, which tasted in equal parts of oil and dead rats, but now that he was here he was prepared to make the best of the situation. Swimming, it happened, was one of the things he did best, and somewhere among his belongings at home was a tarnished pewter cup, which he had won at school in the Saving Life competition. He knew exactly what to do. You get behind the victim and grab him firmly under his arms, and then you start swimming on your back. A moment later, the astonished Mr. Swenson, who, being practically amphibious, had not anticipated that anyone would have the cool impertinence to try to save him from drowning, found himself seized from behind and towed vigorously away from a ten-dollar bill, which he had almost succeeded in grasping. The spiritual agony caused by this assault rendered him mercifully dumb, though even had he contrived to utter the rich Swedish oaths which occurred to him, his remarks could scarcely have been heard, for the crowd on the dock was cheering as one man. They had often paid good money to see far less gripping sights in the movies. They roared applause. The liner, meanwhile, continued to move stodgily out into mid-river. The only drawback to these life-saving competitions at school, considered from the standpoint of fitting the competitors for the problems of afterlife, is that the object saved on such occasions is a leather dummy, and of all things in this world a leather dummy is perhaps the most placid and phlegmatic. It differs in many respects from an emotional Swedish gentleman, six foot high and constructed throughout of steel and India rubber, who is being lugged away from cash which he has been regarding in the light of a legacy. Indeed, it would be hard to find a respect in which it does not differ. So far from lying inert in Sam's arms, and allowing himself to be saved in a quiet and orderly manner, Mr. Swenson betrayed all the symptoms of one who feels that he has fallen among murderers. Mr. Swenson, much as he disliked competition, was ready to put up with it, provided that it was fair competition. This pulling your rival away from the loot so that you could grab it for yourself— thus shockingly had the man misinterpreted Sam's motives, was another thing altogether, and his stout soul would have none of it. He began immediately to struggle with all the violence at his disposal. His large hairy hands came out of the water, and swung hopefully in the direction where he assumed his assailant's face to be. Sam was not unprepared for this display. His researches in the art of life-saving had taught him that your drowning man frequently struggles against his best interests. In which case, cruel to be kind, one simply stunned the blighter. He decided to stun Mr. Swenson, though if he had known that gentleman more intimately, and had been aware that he had the reputation of possessing the thickest head on the waterfront, he would have realized the magnitude of the task." Friends of Mr. Swenson, in convivial moments, had frequently endeavoured to stun him with bottles, boots, and bits of lead piping, and had gone away depressed by failure. Sam, ignorant of this, attempted to do the job with clenched fist, which he brought down as smartly as possible on the crown of the other's bowler hat. It was the worst thing he could have done. 
Mr. Swenson thought highly of his hat, and this brutal attack upon it confirmed his gloomiest apprehensions. Now thoroughly convinced that the only thing to do was to sell his life dearly, he wrenched himself round, seized his assailant by the neck, twined his arms about his middle, and accompanied him below the surface. By the time he had swallowed his first pint, and was beginning his second, Sam was reluctantly compelled to come to the conclusion that this was the end— the thought irritated him unspeakably. This, he felt, was just the silly, contrary way things always happened. Why should it be he who was perishing like this? Why not Eustace Hignett? Now there was a fellow whom this sort of thing would just have suited. Broken-hearted Eustace Hignett would have looked on all this as a merciful release. He paused in his reflections to try to disentangle the more prominent of Mr. Swenson's limbs from about him. By this time he was sure that he had never met anyone he disliked so intensely as Mr. Swenson, not even his Aunt Adeline. The man was a human octopus. Sam could count seven distinct legs twined round him, and at least as many arms. It seemed to him that he was being done to death in his prime by a solid platoon of Swedes. He put his whole soul into one last effort. Something seemed to give. He was free. Pausing only to try to kick Mr. Swenson in the face, Sam shot to the surface. Something hard and sharp prodded him in the head. Then something caught the collar of his coat, and finally, spouting like a whale, he found himself dragged upwards and over the side of a boat. The time which Sam had spent with Mr. Swenson below the surface had been brief, but it had been long enough to enable the whole floating population of the North River to converge on the scene in scows, skiffs, launches, tugs, and other vessels. The fact that the water in that vicinity was crested with currency had not escaped the notice of these navigators, and they had gone to it as one man. First in the race came the tug Reuben S. Watson, the skipper of which, following a famous precedent, had taken his little daughter to bear him company. It was to this fact that Marlowe really owed his rescue. Women often have a vein of sentiment in them where men can only see the hard business side of a situation, and it was the skipper's daughter who insisted that the family boat-hook, then in use as a harpoon for spearing dollar bills, should be devoted to the less profitable but humaner end of extricating the young man from a watery grave. The skipper had grumbled a bit at first, but had given way. He always spoiled the girl, with the result that Sam found himself sitting on the deck of the tug, engaged in the complicated process of restoring his faculties to the normal. In a sort of dream he perceived Mr. Swenson rise to the surface some feet away, adjust his bowler hat, and, after one long look of dislike in his direction, swim off rapidly to intercept a five which was floating under the stern of a nearby skiff. Sam sat on the deck and panted. He played on the boards like a public fountain. At the back of his mind there was a flickering thought that he wanted to do something, a vague feeling that he had some sort of an appointment which he must keep, but he was unable to think what it was. Meanwhile, he conducted tentative experiments with his breath. It was so long since he had last breathed that he had lost the knack of it. "'Well, ain't your wet?' said a voice." The skipper's daughter was standing beside him, looking down commiseratingly. Of the rest of the family all he could see was the broad blue seats of their trousers, 
as they leaned hopefully over the side in the quest for wealth. "'Yes, sir, you sure are wet. Gee, I never seen anyone so wet. I seen wet guys, but I never seen anyone so wet as you. Yes, sir, you're certainly wet.' "'I am wet,' admitted Sam. "'Yes, sir, you're wet. Wet's the word, all right. Good and wet, that's what you are.' "'It's the water,' said Sam. His brain was still clouded. He wished he could remember what that appointment was. "'That's what has made me wet.' "'It sure made you wet, all right,' agreed the girl. She looked at him interestedly. "'What you do it for?' she asked. "'Do it for?' "'Yes, what you do it for? What you do a Brody for off in that ship? I didn't see it myself, but Pa says you come walloping down off in the deck like a sack of potatoes.' Sam uttered a sharp cry. He had remembered. "'Where is she?' "'Where's who?' "'The liner!' "'She's off down the river, I guess. "'She was swinging round the last I seen of her.' "'She's not gone?' "'Sure she's gone. "'What you expect her to do? "'She's got to get over to the other side, ain't she? "'Certainly she's gone.' "'She looked at him interested. "'Do you want to be on board her?' "'Of course I do.' "'Then, for the love of Pete, "'what you doin' wallopin' off in her like a sack of potatoes?' "'I slipped. "'I was pushed or something.' Sam sprang to his feet and looked wildly about him. "'I must get back. Isn't there any way of getting back?' "'Well, you could catch up with her at quarantine out in the bay. She'll stop to let the pilot off.' "'Can you take me to quarantine?' The girl glanced doubtfully at the seat of the nearest pair of trousers. "'Well, we could,' she said. "'But Pa's kind of set in his ways, "'and right now he's fishing for dollar bills with the boat hook. "'He's apt to get sort of mad if he's interrupted.' "'I'll give him fifty dollars if he'll put me on board.' "'Got it on you?' inquired the nymph coyly. "'She had her share of sentiment, but she was her father's daughter, "'and inherited from him the business sense. "'Here it is.' "'He pulled out his pocket-book.' The book was dripping, but the contents were only fairly moist. "'Pa!' said the girl. The trouser-seat remained where it was, deaf to its child's cry. "'Pa! Come here, won't you?' The trousers did not even quiver, but this girl was a girl of decision. There was some nautical implement resting in a rack convenient to her hand. It was long, solid, and constructed of one of the harder forms of wood.' Deftly extracting this from its place, she smote her inattentive parent on the only visible portion of him. He turned sharply, exhibiting a red-bearded face. "'Pa! This gentleman wants to be took aboard the boat at quarantine. He'll give you fifty berries.' The wrath died out of the skipper's face like the slow turning down of a lamp. The fishing had been poor, and so far he had only managed to secure a single two-dollar bill." In a crisis like the one which had so suddenly arisen, you cannot do yourself justice with a boat-hook. Fifty berries! Fifty seeds!' the girl assured him. "'Are you on?' "'Queen,' said the skipper simply, "'you said a mouthful.'" Twenty minutes later Sam was climbing up the side of the liner as it lay towering over the tug like a mountain. His clothes hung about him clamily. He squelched as he walked. A kindly-looking old gentleman, who was smoking a cigar by the rail, regarded him with open eyes. 
"'My dear sir, you're very wet,' he said. Sam passed him with a cold face, and hurried through the door leading to the companionway. "'Mummy, why is that man wet?' cried the clear voice of a little child. Sam whizzed by, leaping down the stairs. "'Good Lord, sir, you're very wet,' said a steward in the doorway of the dining saloon. "'You are wet,' said a stewardess in the passage. Sam raced for his stateroom. He bolted in and sank on the lounge. In the lower berth Eustace Hignett was lying with closed eyes. He opened them languidly, then stared. Hello, he said. I say, you're wet. 4. Sam removed his clinging garments and hurried into a new suit. He was in no mood for conversation, and Eustace Hignett's frank curiosity jarred upon him. Happily, at this point, a sudden shivering of the floor and a creaking of woodwork proclaimed the fact that the vessel was under way again, and his cousin, turning pea-green, rolled over on his side with a hollow moan. Sam finished buttoning his waistcoat and went out. He was passing the inquiry bureau on the sea-deck, striding along with bent head and scowling brow, when a sudden exclamation caused him to look up, and the scowl was wiped from his brow as with a sponge. For there stood the girl he had met on the dock. With her was a superfluous young man who looked like a parrot. "'Oh, how are you?' asked the girl breathlessly. "'Splendid, thanks,' said Sam. "'Didn't you get very wet?' "'I did get a little damp.' "'I thought you would,' said the young man who looked like a parrot. "'Directly I saw you go over the side, I said to myself, "'That fellow is going to get wet.' There was a pause. "'Oh,' said the girl, "'may I—Mr.—' "'Marlowe. "'Mr. Marlowe, Mr. Bream Mortimer.' Sam smirked at the young man. The young man smirked at Sam. "'Nearly got left behind,' said Bream Mortimer. "'Yes, nearly. "'No joke getting left behind.' "'No.' "'Have to take the next boat. "'Lose a lot of time,' said Mr. Mortimer, "'driving home his point.' The girl had listened to these intellectual exchanges with impatience. She now spoke again. "'Oh, Bream!' "'Hello?' "'Do be a dear, and run down to the saloon, and see if it's all right about our places for lunch.' "'It is all right. The table steward said so.' "'Yes, but go and make certain.' "'All right.' He hopped away, and the girl turned to Sam with shining eyes. "'Oh, Mr. Marlowe, you oughtn't to have done it. "'Really, you oughtn't. "'You might have been drowned. "'But I never saw anything so wonderful. "'It was like the stories of knights "'who used to jump into lion's dens after gloves.' "'Yes,' said Sam, a little vaguely. "'The resemblance had not struck him. "'It seemed a silly hobby, "'and rough on the lions, too. "'It was the sort of thing Sir Lancelot or Sir Galahad would have done, "'but you shouldn't have bothered, really. "'It's all right now.' "'Oh, it's all right now?' "'Yes, I'd quite forgotten that Mr. Mortimer was to be on board. "'He has given me all the money I shall need. "'You see, it was this way. "'I had to sail on this boat in rather a hurry. "'Father's head clerk was to have gone to the bank "'and got some money and met me on board and given it to me, "'but the silly old man was late, "'and when he got to the dock they had just pulled in the gangplank. "'So he tried to throw the money to me in a handkerchief, "'and it fell into the water. "'But you shouldn't have dived in after it.' 
"'Oh, well,' said Sam, straightening his tie, with a quiet, brave smile. He had never expected to feel grateful to that obese bounder who had shoved him off the rail, but now he would have liked to seek him out and shake him by the hand. "'You really are the bravest man I ever met.' "'Oh, no. How modest you are, but I suppose all brave men are modest.' "'I was only too delighted at what looked like a chance of doing you a service.' "'It was the extraordinary quickness of it that was so wonderful. "'I do admire presence of mind. "'You didn't hesitate for a second. "'You just shot over the side as though propelled by some irresistible force.' "'It was nothing, nothing really. "'One just happens to have the knack of keeping one's head "'and acting quickly on the spur of the moment. "'Some people have it, some haven't.' "'And just think, as Bream was saying—' "'It is all right,' said Mr. Mortimer, reappearing suddenly. "'I saw a couple of the stewards, and they both said it was all right. "'So it's all right.' "'Splendid,' said the girl. "'Oh, Bream!' "'Hello. "'Do be an angel and run along to my stateroom "'and see if Pinky Boodles is quite comfortable.' "'Bound to be.' "'Yes, but do go. He may be feeling lonely. "'Chirrup to him a little.' "'Chirrup?' "'Yes, to cheer him up.' "'Oh, all right. "'Run along.' Mr. Mortimer ran along. He had the air of one who feels that he only needs a peaked cap and a uniform two sizes too small for him to be a properly equipped messenger boy. "'And, as Bream was saying,' resumed the girl, "'you might have been left behind.' "'That,' said Sam, edging a step closer, was the thought that tortured me, the thought that a friendship so delightfully begun. But it hadn't begun. We have never spoken to each other before now. Have you forgotten? On the dock? Sudden enlightenment came into her eyes. Oh, you are the man poor Pinky Boodle's bit. The lucky man. Her face clouded. Poor Pinky is feeling the motion of the boat a little. It's his first voyage. I shall always remember that it was Pinky who first brought us together. Would you care for a stroll on deck? Not just now, thanks. I must be getting back to my room to finish unpacking. After lunch, perhaps. I will be there. By the way, you know my name, but— Oh, mine? She smiled brightly. It's funny that a person's name is the last thing one thinks of asking. Mine is Bennett. Bennett? Wilhelmina Bennett, my friends, she said softly as she turned away, call me Billy. End of chapter two, part two, read by Kara Schallenberg on June fourth, two thousand eleven, in San Diego, California.